Yes, well, have, have you seen my friend Harvey here? Well, no? Well, how about Berkey Grocks? afternoon you're listening to 90.7 fm klx i'm franklin and this is berkeley rocks that's right it's a weekly look at the world of science technology and their effects on our daily lives i'm charles lee coming up on today's show sunscreen supernovas and earth spin in addition we'll be joined by chin ong who will talk about the science of bamboo also we'll find out what disease the titi fly carries so stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. The voice of reason. Wow, I thought you the voice of GM or something this week. <laughs> uh, okay, so the voice of corporate America. How about that? <laughs> because corporate America really needs a voice. They're not understood at all. Everybody uh, keeps vilifying them for some reason. Just because they don't want to control their carbon emissions. Are they really that bad? I think it's because they want to control the world, I think is the thing. Uh, so Charles, here's the question for you. What do you do at the first sign of danger? Run screaming and uh, I, I actually sometimes I strip naked and, and run into the forest, yeah. Okay, do you start peeing? Yes, that is one of my bodily functions. Okay, which brings us to our, our animal this week. Time for the animal of the week. I'm so excited. <laughs> the crayfish. I, I, the crayfish. Yes, so uh, apparently at the first time danger, they just start peeing. And this is supposed to ward off intruders, or what's the, the function? Uh, it's supposed to signal other crayfish that there's danger. So it's sort of the sacrifice of the one crayfish. So. If you're a lobster, they go even further. They actually pee in each other's eyes. <laughs> How does that help? Uh, it's a chemical signal that tells them whether there's danger or whether they're flirting with them. <laughs> <laughs> Both could be the same, you know? <laughs> I don't know if you've been to any clubs lately. <laughs> uh, I try to avoid them. <laughs> That's all the new rage, people peeing in each other's faces. <laughs> I, I guess I really can't say until I try it, huh? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I, I do have a real story, actually. I would expect nothing less because uh, crayfish, though cool, pale in comparison to all your real stories. Yes. Have you visited the national parks lately? So it turns out this has been a phenomenon since 1987. The amount of, of visitors going to our national parks has gone down steadily. Is this because people are just traveling less? Only a small reason. Actually, it turns out from this recent study in the Journal of Environmental Management, they blame 97.5% of this on the fact that people are more hooked on the video, TV, computer, you know. Well, why go to the actual park when you can just see it on TV? <laughs> in fact, they also blame it on movies about nature. <laughs> well, nature is always best observed from an air-conditioned theater. <laughs> Plus, we're not bothering the uh, terrain there, right? <laughs> right. So it's an ecological benefit as well. Okay, so maybe there's nothing to worry about. <laughs> But some of these scientists are concerned that videophilia, as they call it, may uh, doom national parks. Well, it'll only make it less crowded for the true hardcore nature enthusiasts. This was in the uh, recent report issue of Journal of Environmental Management. Uh, Well, I think I have a solution to that uh, problem of people not going to the national parks. They can just wait for the national parks to come to them. (laughs) 
That's like real zen there. <laughs> Let it go natural, huh? Turns out the Earth may uh, actually rebalance itself every now and then, such that the poles move, and so that the a lot of shifts going on in the orientation of the Earth's rotational axis. So is this the precessional uh, phenomenon, or is it something even more Earth-changing? Yes, in fact, this is what's called true polar wander. The magnetic wandering? No, actually the wander of the rotation of the Earth. I didn't think that was possible. Well, uh, imagine, for example, you had a very large uh, volcano forming on some part of Earth's surface, Mm -hmm. kind of far away from the equator. Right. What would happen is that the spin would start to rotate such that this very large mass is now distributed towards the equator. Is it due to continent shifting? No, no, no. It's actually a shift, the the rotation of the Earth, such that slowly starts to spin, such that this mass then drifts towards the equator. So how is uh, angular momentum conserved then? The, that is sort of the question. I guess there's sort of a redistribution also in the mantle as well, and so you okay. have fluids in the mantle where they go in the opposite direction. I imagine that's how I it see. works. Yeah. But people, of course, have argued whether such a thing could actually exist. Uh-huh. And researchers led by geologist Adam Alouf of Princeton University and Galen Haverson of Paul Sabatier University in Toulouse, France, studied signatures from deposits in the Earth's magnetic fields. Mm-hmm. So certain bacteria will lay down magnetic signatures as right. they die in the surface. So they can study these things. And what they found is that it looks like from the signature of these magnetic fields that such a shift had occurred. Wow. And it may occur again? Well, presumably. I guess if such a large mass appears away from the Earth's uh, uh-huh. equator, yeah. So if, if the asteroids don't get us, then... Uh, <laughs> hmm. Anyway, very fascinating work published in the recent edition of the Geological Society of America Bulletin. So Charles, do you believe in sunscreen? As the fake graduation speech from Vonnegut said, always wear sunscreen. So it turns out for the first time in 18 years, the FDA has approved a new sunscreen compound. In the U.S., there are 17 which are now allowed. Oh, okay. In Europe, I guess 28. This new sunscreen, which is uh, marketed by L'Oreal, is capable of filtering out short UVA waves. So these are uh, higher energy waves in the 320 to 340 nanometer wavelengths. And why is this better than the ones currently on the market? Ones on the market primarily for the UVB rays, which just cause the skin uh, to burn. Right. And the UVA ones are the ones that cause the more of the damage to the cell. Yeah, these are the ones responsible for skin cancer. Mm, okay. When is it going to be on the market, and when can I buy it, and where can I rub it on my skin? <laughs> Apparently it should be uh, available quite soon, and it'll come as a daily moisturizing cream. I love rubbing stuff on my skin daily. Reduces the friction. <laughs> Indeed. All right, well, I have another solution for avoiding a suntan. Wait for the sun to explode. Why don't we just get out during the nighttime? (laughs) Well, that's another solution, too. Sleep during the day. Uh, Researchers have actually been studying supernovas for quite some time. Yeah. These are stars exploding at the end of their life cycle. Brilliant big bang, huh? Yes. Don't don't you want to end life on a big bang? (laughs) Uh, I'm just waiting for any bang at the moment. But researchers who have studied these things actually look for gamma ray bursts as signatures of the supernova. Uh huh. So and these happen after or before the actual explosion? Since during the explosion, they blow out jets of matter in two opposite directions and produce at the same time these bursts of energetic gamma rays. Okay. But at the same time, astronomers have long suggested that X-ray flashes that are observed might be due to milder explosions that are found. But there's been no proof up until now except in a recent study released from an observation of an X-ray flash known as XRF060218. They observed a flash that was strongly correlated with a supernova that was occurring about 440 million light years away in the constellation of Aries the Ram. 
Wow. Because anything occurring in Aries the Ram is pretty damn cool. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, But they were able to correlate this with uh, supernova and some gamma ray bursts, and so it seemed like it was pretty strong evidence that the X-ray flashes mm-hmm. are sort of due to mild explosions in the supernovas. So I guess the rationale is that why are they uh, these two different classes? The rationale is that perhaps bigger supernovas might be producing black holes while smaller ones produce neutron stars. So we get different energetics involved in the two processes. So I guess if the sun doesn't give off a black hole, we still have a chance to live. group of papers actually published by a number of authors in several journals, so you can take a look at a bunch of them. But there's a recent one actually published in a recent edition of Nature by Elena Penn of the University of Trieste in Italy. And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is Berkeley Grosh, listening to here on 90.7 FM KALX. In a few moments... Michael Hartman talks about quantum computers, and Chinong joins us to talk about bamboo forests. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox. Well, conventional computers rely on uh, units of information called bits, which usually take on the states of 0 and 1, but these can only be done individually at one time. In contrast, scientists have theorized about developing quantum computers that can take these multiple states at the same time and uh, run them through algorithms on a circuit. Well, joining us today is an expert in this field, Dr. Michael Hartman from the Imperial College London's Department of Physics, and he'll tell us a little bit about their efforts to build a quantum computer. Uh, Dr. Hartman, thank you so much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. Well, I'm happy to be here. So first of all, um, could you tell us what exactly uh, is a quantum computer? Um, Well, there are there are several ideas around for doing that. So one idea is uh, more related to how a classical computer works. That's the so-called circuit model, where you act on some input with a sequence of gates where two bits are uh, uh, changed in their state according to each other. While Then there is a second model around, which is uh, the so-called one-way quantum computer, where you initially prepare uh, a quantum system in a specific configuration, we call that a state, and that state is sort of a a resource for all your computation, and and the computation then proceeds as you just do some sort of measurements on some of these quantum bits this state uh, contains, and that makes the information evolve and you get uh, to your output. So there are um, there are various ideas around, and uh, well, the race I think isn't decided yet which one will turn out to be uh, 
the first realized or, or, or the most successful one. So some initial well, or small-scale realizations have been there for both. And, uh, well, yeah, that's sort of the current situation in this. And could you tell us a little bit uh, about the device that you've developed and how it could lead to an actual quantum computer? Well, so um, the device we have developed or, or uh, the proposal for this is um, a way to make quantum mechanical particles um, behave and interact in a very controlled way. So what, what you need for implementing such a quantum computer is that you have a quantum system in your lab that you have very good control of and that you can very well uh, isolate from the surrounding because noise of the surrounding is uh, quite harmful to your, to your quantum computation. So what, what our idea is, is a proposal to um, use polaritons that is a combination of uh, uh, light particles or a photon and, and an excitation in an atom and that in, in an array of cavities, which are uh, devices that store light for a, for a long time. Um, so in, for, for this setup, we have uh, developed a scheme where you can control these polaritons very well and make them interact in a desired way. And for doing quantum computation, you can then use this device to prepare, for example, this initial resource state, which is well, it's called a cluster state usually. So that's that's the way our device can uh, help make this quantum computation realized. And um, there have been other devices yet which also aimed at realizing this initial cluster state. However, what, what our approach adds to this is that um, in this previous attempts making the local measurements uh, so far turned out to be not possible. And um, our approach now, um, by construction, enables doing these local measurements. So that's the, uh, the significant step ahead that, that comes with this. And so have you been successful in actually uh, processing a, a quantum bit like this, uh, run a sort of a, um, algorithm on it? Um, so we we are working on on the theory part so um we do not do the experiment ourselves what we have done so far is um developing the idea that you can do it that way we have um checked whether the known uh, uh mechanisms of loss and noise could be harmful to this uh to this uh model and and uh, have found that uh for a significant amount of time, the the error thresholds would be low. And um, <clears throat> so what we have to see now is, does it really work in an experiment? I mean, we are very confident it will, but obviously the ultimate test is only the experiment itself. And obviously also our, our plans to go on with the research is then um, to adapt quantum information processing ideas to precisely our model. But at this stage, it's just the idea of this new implementation is there, and, and, and we are working on what comes next. Okay, that sounds really exciting. Um, so I heard one of the problems with actually developing a, a, a quantum computer is that um, the number of bits you can actually input is actually quite limited because the 
as your system grows, um, the signal-to-noise ratio uh, becomes worse, and as a result, it's harder to pick up the signal. Is this a problem that uh, you can overcome with your system? Mm, you cannot fully overcome this, but it's it's all about pushing limits there. Um, so um, at say at this stage, we are more thinking of our our system being uh, used as a so-called quantum simulator. That is. Okay, the the reason why quantum systems are useful for computation is that they can handle much more data than classical computers can. Um, on the other hand, this also implies that for characterizing a quantum system fully, you need a huge amount of data. So that's why classical computers are not capable of doing this. And um, so an, an intermediate step that requires slightly less control and precision than doing actual quantum computation is uh, making such a quantum simulator happen, which is um, you use a system that you can fairly well control in the lab and make it uh, simulate other quantum systems you don't have that good experimental access to. And um, so that's what we believe is, is, is the, on, on the more short-term uh, the application of our idea. And so, on um, you know, a more practical basis, um, what does this mean for the average computer user? Does this mean we can uh, play, um, you know, better games? Um, can we, um, um, you know, simulate um, uh, video compression much faster? Uh, what does it mean? Um, well, there are uh, a few points which are known where, where um, Quantum computers are are uh, much stronger than classical ones, and uh, um, so one is that they can factorize huge numbers in, in, into their prime factors in much faster time that uh, than classical computers can do, and that's sort of important because uh, right now lots of encoding schemes are based on the fact that it takes in incredibly long time to factorize huge numbers into their prime factors. So these encoding schemes would become unsecure when quantum computers are around. Um, well, it's it's sort of really hard to predict uh, how it would change everyone's life. And I think um, at this stage also, we are probably, we haven't figured out the full use quantum computers would have yet. Um, I think that will only take place once we have uh, larger scale implementations running in the labs and, and stuff. Okay, great. Well, um, Professor Hartman, I guess we're running about time. I just want to thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Well, thanks. It's been a pleasure, yeah. And that was Dr. Michael Hartman from Imperial College London on quantum computers. In a few moments, we'll find out more about bamboo forests with Chen Ong. So stay right there.
Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. Well, joining us right now is Bob Doty from VOA News on a report on bamboo reforestation. Scientists may have found a way to slow deforestation. In this report written by Frank Ling, Bob Doty reports that fast-growing bamboo can help quickly replenish a forest stripped of timber. Forests are shrinking globally as people in developing nations seek wood for fuel and more land for farming. The World Watch Institute in Washington says Earth has lost 1% of its woodlands in the last five years, an area about the size of Germany. Ecologists say the environmental damage is alarming. Overlogging and failure to replant cause widespread soil erosion and loss of wildlife habitat. Deforestation also affects global climate. Trees absorb carbon dioxide, a greenhouse gas. Burning trees and rotting wood left by loggers are thought to add to global warming by emitting more of the gas into the atmosphere, where it hovers and traps the sun's heat. Experts say the loss of forests will continue unless alternatives to wood are found. Most of the forested area have gone down by 70 to 90 percent. So we need sustainable form of farming timber. This is water specialist Chin Ong at the International Center for Research in Agroforestry in Nairobi, Kenya. He says one promising substitute for wood is bamboo, a grass with a tree-like appearance. Some varieties grow more than 25 meters tall and 20 centimeters thick. Ong points out that bamboo can be grown all over the world and has advantages over timber. One is its speedy growth. You can harvest after three or four years, and then every year after that, because it's like grass. So when you cut a bamboo down, it will produce another shoot, and it's ready for harvesting in one or two years. Whereas if you grow a eucalyptus tree, you need five to ten years before you can harvest again. Another reason is that bamboo has a very high water use efficiency, which is double that of any tree species. Ong says the plants can be an additional cash crop in areas where sugarcane and coffee are already established. He estimates that in the Lake Victoria region of Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda alone, as many as 150 million people can benefit economically. Plant biologist David Midmore of the Central Queensland University in Australia says bamboo also has environmental benefits. In Taiwan... Bamboo is grown on the hillsides along the edge of the mountains and it is sustainably harvested for its shoots and for its timber and it's an environmentally friendly species because it's also preventing any erosion. Midmore says bamboo shoots are also an important source of nutrition and can withstand harsh climates. It's one of the few species that will produce even during typhoons whereas most vegetable species will get blown away, washed away, or rot. Bamboo shoots continue to thrive under hot and wet conditions. In addition to providing lumber and food, bamboo plants can clean the environment. Chin Ong is studying how bamboo groves could remove toxins from dirty waters. We have been analyzing what are the heavy metals that can be removed by bamboo species, and the bamboo species behave very similar to papyrus, which is a natural vegetation in the wetlands in this region. So they take up all these heavy metals and they can clean the water. Chin Ong says there is an unfulfilled potential for bamboo to protect forests and improve agriculture. Bob Doty, VOA News, Washington. Hey, thanks a lot, Bob.
And Forrest here with the answer to last week's question of the week. Well, the TT flaw is a little bit annoying. In fact, it carries a little bit of a deadly disease. African sleeping disease. You don't want to get that on your skin. <laughs> oh, yes indeed, Forrest. It's Sean Connery here. Traveling to the center of the earth, I'll tell you something else you don't want on your skin. Commodoms. Well, what are they? If you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us at groks at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but you just might escape the rock. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us for Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Thank you.